0: You may notice something a little bit different after I preach today in our liturgy. We're going to be singing a couple of songs after the sermon. And the reason for that, at least this Sunday, is in preparation for next Sunday. As you know, we've gone from observing the Lord's Supper, administrating it every other week to now every week And for those who are serving in our children's ministry beginning next week, we want to make sure that they, as members of our church, have an opportunity to come and participate in the Lord's Supper with us. And so moving forward on Sundays, the two songs that follow will be a time of transition for some of us. While most of us sing, it'll be an opportunity for you parents to go back and get your kiddos, to bring them in, and for our volunteers to come and enjoy the Lord's Supper with us And so if you notice those two songs, it's a little bit different than what we normally do. Now you know why. If you're a visitor with us, uh, what you see happening uh, this morning is what we always do. We want to sing God's Word. We want to pray from God's Word. We want to read it. And we want to spend some time hearing from God as His Word is preached And the way that we typically go about preaching God's word is verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. We understand that God has revealed spiritually, supernaturally, his truth in a certain way. And that we are able to honor him and the spirit, his spirit by which he has inspired his word by understanding that he's not only inspired the words themselves, but how the whole thing has been organized the arguments that are being made, the narratives that are told, what is included and what is left out. And so we give God glory, honor Him and worship Him by honoring the text in our preaching, as all of it, we understand, ultimately points to God's work in the world through the person, Jesus Christ, that is the God-man. The Bible says that the Christian faith has the power, First John 5, 4, to over. Come the world. And if you're anything like me, then your faith often has a hard time grasping and comprehending that reality that we have in Christ overcome the world such that the world, with all of its strength and all of its power and all of its pomp, can in the end do nothing to us. Those who have trusted in Christ, those who have hoped in God and His promises, are those who have staked not only the life to come, but have staked this life, have staked their life on Him. This is what we see in the chapter that we're looking at this morning, Isaiah chapter 37. I encourage you to, Open up your copies of God's word to that chapter. You can pull it up on your phone if you use one of your devices. Isaiah chapter 37. There is 66 chapters in Isaiah, just like there's 66 books of the Bible. Many scholars have said the book of Isaiah is the Bible in microcosm. But if you can understand the whole of Isaiah, then you can understand the whole of your Bible. And I think that's right. Right? Out of 66 chapters, 63 of them are all in Hebrew poetry, with various parallelisms and line A matching with line B, matching with line B, then again with line A, and so on and so forth. But there are three chapters out of all 66 that change. They turn to story, to narrative. And that's where we find ourselves this morning, chapters 36. Through chapter 39, four chapters rather, are all narrative that's actually taken and, and narrated elsewhere in the Bible in 1 Kings, or Second Kings chapter 18 and 19. And as we observed last week, why in the world would God take the same story and repeat it twice, one in the historical books and one in the prophets, and the answer is He really, really wants us to get this. What Isaiah is doing is he is inserting a narrative in the middle of all of his preaching to drive home the central truth of his book, and that is that we are to trust in the Lord alone. That we are to stake our lives on God and his promises. And he puts in front of us an example in the king of Judah, King Hezekiah. In his dealings with Assyria, now Assyria has come against Judah, against Jerusalem. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has carved his way through the southern kingdom. And he has laid to waste one city after another. And now he finds himself on the outside of the gates of Jerusalem, breathing threats through the second in command, his Rabshaka, as we see. One of those funny names in the Bible, For any of you pregnant ladies, I dare you to name your son Rabshaka. Call him Rabbi. But that's who we see here is the Rabshaka second in command, breathing threats at Hezekiah, undermining his trust and his faith in God, trying to define the reality of his own power and of the power of the Assyrian kingdom, as has been made evidence in the world stage there in the Fertile Crescent. There was much for Hezekiah to fear. But as we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 36, Hezekiah had begun to undergo a change that in the face of these threats where he had previously relied on foreign powers like Egypt to try to rescue them, where he had relied on sending money to Assyria to try to buy them off, where he had relied on all kinds of human solutions and human reason that didn't have anything to do with God. Now God has finally brought him through one failure after another, one humiliation after another. God has brought him to the point of trusting in God. And so for the first time he turns away from his own wisdom. He turns away from the nations around him and he turns to the house of the Lord and he sought out Isaiah. The man who had been preaching the word all of along, the one who, whom Hezekiah and the nation had been poking fun at and ignoring and ridiculing now it's Isaiah the one who has words from the Lord that Hezekiah has turned to and we see at the end of or the beginning of 37 where we left off last week that Hezekiah has now been brought to the point where his greatest concern is not so much his own safety it's on his own reputation his concerns transcend that of his circumstances, his concerns ultimately are for the glory of God. Verse 4, chapter 37, that the king of Assyria has sent to mock the living God. And the reason that he has is because of Assyria's faithlessness. And so we asked ourselves last week, do we live the kinds of lives that, that demonstrates to the world that is a God worth trusting in? Or... Do we live the kind of lives that are so indistinguishable from those in the world around us that our faith can be dismissed as nothing more than mere sentimentality, as mere religion, such that our God would be mocked? Hezekiah doesn't care so much that he's mocked. He has been brought to the point by God's grace of caring chiefly that God's name is being mocked among the nations. And this leads us to where we are this morning. We're going to be beginning in verse 8 of chapter 37. We're going to go through the end of chapter 37. And what we're going to see is three movements. If this were a play, it would be three acts. In Act chapter 1, we're going to see the king of Assyria speaking to King Hezekiah. And then picking up in verse 14 all the way through Verse 35, we're going to see the king or King Hezekiah speaking to the king of kings. Then the chapter concludes in verse 36 to the end with the king of kings speaking to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria is addressing King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah then turns and speaks to the king of kings and then the king of kings turns and addresses the king of Assyria. That's the flow of the passage that we're looking at this morning. Let's begin in verse 8. The Shaka, that second in command in Assyria, returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Taraka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. By promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Even in the face of an Egyptian threat, one that Hezekiah had sought to establish in order to protect little bitty Judah from great big Assyria. Even against the threat of Egyptian warfare, of going to battle with the Egyptians... The king of Assyria is not going to let Hezekiah off the hook. In fact, he identifies ultimately what's really at stake for Hezekiah in verse 10. Did you see that there? Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Don't operate under any illusion or presumption that God, regardless of what you think he says to you, can really save you or rescue you from my hand. Of course, knowing what's really at stake, God up in verse seven had already promised, "I will get rid of Assyria, I'll send him away. He won't even lay a hand on Jerusalem." And here the Rob Shaka says, "You can't believe a word of it." In fact, he says, in verses 11 to 13, "Don't buy a single word. I don't want you to buy it at all, because have you heard verse 11? Have you heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction? When you consider all of that, he says, will you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden who were in telasar Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, the king of Iva? Of course, what he's saying is, every single one of these have been laid waste. Assyria is undefeated. Nobody's come against us and stood in the end. We have yet to notch an L in all of our campaigns. Do you think you and your God will fare any better than these empires and their gods? Don't be deceived by the words of your God. He won't be able to do anything more than the other gods of the other nations were able to do for them. Friends, this is how temptation always works, isn't it? It mixes lies about God and his word with a whole lot of truth about our circumstances. Notice there's nothing here in verses 11 to 13 that the Rabshakeh says to Hezekiah that is not true. Did Assyria do these things? Yes, they did. Is Assyria undefeated? Yes, they are. Has anyone at this point come up to Assyria in such a way that they would emerge victorious? No, they have not. It's a whole lot of truth. Here, Assyria is trying to get Hezekiah to define reality, and the reality is you don't stand a chance. And now what he wants is him to interpret the truth of his circumstances externally To look through the lenses of those circumstances and make conclusions about God. If this is true about us and this is true about you, we're really big, you're really small, we've got lots of power and we're great, you aren't. Why in the world would you believe the word of your God? Friends, it's no different for us today. Time and again the enemy makes us look at our circumstances at work, in our marriages, with our kids Look how difficult it is, look how unhappy you are, look how much you're struggling, look at how much of a of a of a strain this is. Would you really believe God? Wouldn't you be happier taking a a little bit off the top at your job without your boss knowing? Maybe just adding a few extra hours to your timesheet. After all you deserve it. Wouldn't you wouldn't you be happy with that other person instead of your spouse? After all, it seems like your chemistry with them is so much better. Wouldn't it seem better, given the way that your children behave, that you would just explode in anger? Never mind what God says, that anger can't produce the righteousness of God. They deserve it. Or perhaps even in the face of cultural opposition, politically or otherwise, The realities of being scorned in our own culture, of being objected, of being marginalized is just far too great. Certainly, it seems that you cannot trust your God. Temptation always mixes lies about God with truths about our circumstances such that we would disbelieve God, that we would doubt what we hold in our hearts with what we see with our eyes, So the question in these first handful of verses to Hezekiah and the question to us is, will we stake our lives, all of our lives, not just a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, will we stake all of our lives on God? Do we believe that God will defend himself by defending us? Even when the mathematics, when we look at our circumstances, even when the math doesn't add up, Or is our faith not so much faith as it is just sentimentality? It's what we've just grown up with, perhaps, or what I've received from my parents. It's no more than a hallmark Christianity, a Thomas Kincaid painting. Lots of light, but in the end, fake. The truth is always revealed in the moments like the one that Hezekiah is facing. The truth is always revealed when life squeezes in on us the way that it is for Hezekiah. But I want you to notice that Hezekiah, this time, he will not be intimidated into thinking that this is ultimately about him. We've already seen that his concern is for the glory of God, and he's going to double down because his concern is with the reputation of his Lord above all. And so it's to God that he goes, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Beginning here in verse 14 all the way through the end of verse 35 we're going to see four things about the king of kings. In verses 14 to 20 we're going to see the king's sufficiency. In verses 21 to 29 we're going to see the king's sovereignty. Verses 30 to 32, we'll see the king's sign. And then in verses 33 to 35, we'll see the king's statute. Four things about the king of kings. His sufficiency, his sovereignty, his sign, and his statute. Just consider the sufficiency of the king of kings. Verses 14 and 15, Hezekiah goes to the house of the Lord. He spreads out the letter and he prays through it. At the beginning of chapter 37, which we saw last week, Hezekiah came to Isaiah. That's good. His faith is beginning to awaken to the living God. But here, he goes directly to God. In chapter 36, the Rabshakeh sees that Hezekiah was kind of trusting in God, but ultimately trusting in Egypt to rescue them. But now, did you notice in verses 8 to 13, the Rabshakeh doesn't even mention Egypt. Egypt. The only thing he's worried about undermining with Hezekiah is his faith in God. And why is that? Because Hezekiah is trusting in God alone. Egypt isn't even on the periphery anymore for him. If he's going to get out of this, it's not going to be with the help of another nation. It's going to be with the help of the the true living God. The one and only God. Notice that his faith from chapter 36 to chapter 37, the faith of Hezekiah in the in the middle of all of this getting squeezed in this vice of his circumstances, it's getting less complicated and it's getting less convoluted. It's getting more straightforward. No more coming up with plan Bs and Cs, no more backup plans to the backup plans to the backup plans. I'm going to God. I don't have another backup plan. God's the only plan. He's plan A and he's plan Z. He's all of the plans that I have left, and this is where God has brought him. And he says in verses 16 and 17 that this ultimately isn't about me. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all of the kingdoms of the earth, including the one that's outside my door, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. He says, Lord, this isn't ultimately about me. This is ultimately about you. This isn't about my glory. This is about your glory. This isn't about my name. This is about your name. Because verses 18 and 19, everything the Shaka has said is true. Assyria has, in fact, beat up everyone. They have discredited every single god. And so verse 20, I'm coming to you, begging for you to save us so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone are Lord. That is a different way to pray. He's not concerned for his needs. He's concerned for God's glory. He's not praying, Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? But he's saying, will you not glorify yourself in this? Hezekiah sees what Isaiah has been saying all along that ultimately, what we have to deal with in our lives is not the world, not our circumstances. What we've ultimately got to come to grips with and who we ultimately have to deal with is God Himself. I hope that you realize that God-centeredness of God is really good news for you. At least in two ways. Number one, that your unworthiness is irrelevant to God's readiness to save you. He's not responding to what you deserve, but he's proving what a good savior and redeemer and king he really is. Which means that happiness, true happiness, happiness and joy that transcends circumstances, happiness is God being God to you. Not just something that is quarantined to certain parts of your life, but is the defining reality of all of your life. that, That we would begin when that reality strikes, when God begins to be God to us. We begin to pray less and less, Lord, make my life better. God, would you change my husband or my, my wife? Would you make my children more obedient? Would you give me a different job? Not bad things to pray for, but that's not the end of our life. No, we begin to pray more and more. I want you to be God to me. I want my life and all of my problems, whatever they may be, to be circumstances, a stage for you to show the world who you are and what you can do. The Apostle Paul put it this way It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. In other words, that in my hope and what I've staked my life on that I would not, be shown to, that it would not be shown that my faith is fraudulent in any way. He says that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. I want all of life both in the good things that the Lord brings and in all of the bad things the Lord intends for good. I want all of my life to be the testimony to the sufficiency of this king. Ray Ortlund Jr. put it this way, the way that we respond to our challenges determine whether we will confirm the world's suspicions that Christianity is just another selfish power trip or whether we will surprise them by proving that Christianity is about finding in the glory of Christ everything desirable. That we remove self from the center and we erect his cross there. Are you waving at me? Okay. Beginning in Verse 21 through the end of verse 35, these next three sections of God's sovereignty and his sign and his statute, they all go together. Because in verses 14 to 20, we see Hezekiah talking to God. But now in verse 21, God is the one that's speaking in all three of these sections. And so here first in verses 21 to 29, we see the king's sovereignty and he's going to put the king of Assyria in his place. Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Because you've prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, and she scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights, O king of Assyria? Here's who against the Holy One of Israel. Sennacherib has no idea who he's messed with. He's been strutting. Through one victory after another and God in the end is offended by his pride because according to verses 24 and 25 it is Sennacherib's pride that has risen up to the Lord. By your servants you have, notice this, mocked the Lord. You have said with many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I've cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses to come to the remotest height in its fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. In other words, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is saying nothing can stop me. I am, as it were, omnipotent, all-powerful. Pride is the sin of sins. One person put it this way, pride is the perfect blasphemy because it denies the perfect God. And that's exactly what Sennacherib has done. And so beginning in verse 26, God then asserts his ultimacy because all of Sennacherib's victories we're gonna see are ultimately God's plan. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned it from days of old, what now I bring to pass. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown. Here we see the harmony of human strength and power and the sovereignty of God. There is nothing that Sennacherib has done that The God of Israel has not allowed and decreed to occur. Here we see this harmony of this mystery. You notice all the way back up in verse 21. God said to Hezekiah. Because you prayed. Human responsibility is real. The sovereignty of God doesn't negate it. And yet in verse 26. We see God saying I determined it long ago. Divine sovereignty is is real, And no amount of human activity can throw God's decree off the tracks. All of God's purposes will be fulfilled through the means of the actions of his creatures. And so here from his position of sovereignty, God sees all and he knows all. And he opposes human pride. Verses 28 and 29. I know you're sitting down. You're going out and you're coming in. You're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back the way by which you came. Here in verses 28 and 29, Isaiah comes as close as I think is possible to explaining the mystery of God's sovereignty interfacing with human responsibility. He compares it to a man riding a horse with a hook in his nose and a bit in his mouth. That man is supplying all the energy, but notice God is the one that gives direction. I will turn you. You'll provide the energy, but I'm going to take you exactly where I want you to go, and you will accomplish all of my purposes. And when you have done just that, then I will be done with you. You will accomplish all of your evil up to a point. And that point will be the fulfillment of all of my purposes so that the world may know that I alone am the Lord. So God opposes the proud in his sovereignty. But notice also that he not only opposes the proud in his sovereignty, but he gives grace to the humble. We see that phrase, God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble in James 4, 1 Peter 5. It's a It's at the very heart of the Christian message. And it's here that we move from God's sovereignty to the king's sign. Verse 30, this shall be a sign for you. The year you shall eat what grows of itself and the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, eat the fruit and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upwards. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hezekiah turned to God in faith and God never lets true faith go unmet. Here we see the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom has been diminished over the course of years. They've, prayed a, they've paid a steep price for being allergic to God for so long. But here Hezekiah turns to God on God's own terms, and God honors his faith. And he promises a surviving remnant that this remnant will be a sign. Ultimately, though, what does this sign signify? Verse 32, that what gets us through these kinds of circumstances, through this life and into the next, is not ultimately the fervency of our zeal for the Lord, what gets us through is God's zeal for his own glory. Verse 32, do you see that? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. But how is it then that in his zeal, God will rescue this band of survivors out of Mount Zion? We see that in verses 33 to 35, where the king's sign leads to the king's statute. Therefore, Because of this sign that I've promised in verses 30 to 32, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come into this city. He won't even shoot an arrow there. He won't come before it with a shield or cast up siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David." God will rescue his people because he has made a promise. And specifically, we see at the end of verse 35 that he has made a promise to David. From its initiation with Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, the kingdom of Israel and all of its covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant, all of these covenants contain the promise of a seed, and this seed would end up being the serpent crushing seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3, as well as the nation's blessing seed of Abraham in Genesis 12. And these covenants to Abraham, to Israel through Moses, and to David all combined to make up what the New Testament calls the Old Covenant. The purpose of the Old Covenant was to produce the New Covenant, because the purpose of the Old Covenant was to provide a Messiah a king who would save his people. That's why these covenants are what the New Testament refers to as in Romans 9 and Ephesians 2 as covenants of promise. They're all looking forward to something bigger and greater and better than themselves. They're types and patterns and shadows that look forward to the fulfillment in the development of these covenants of promise to Abraham, to Moses, and to David, what it does it is expands all of the types and all of the patterns of God's gospel promises in both a broad and a narrow way. Broadly, the entire kingdom of Israel and all of its covenants were types. As Hebrews 10.1 asserts, that the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. They're not ends in themselves. They're means to an end. They're three-dimensional prophecies looking forward to something bigger and greater than itself. That the land of Canaan was a shadow of a greater land. The sacrificial system was a shadow of a greater sacrifice. The priestly lineage was a shadow of a greater high priest. The victories and triumphs of David were a shadow of David's greater son yet to come. The exodus was a shadow of a greater deliverance. And the Passover was a shadow of a greater passing over. And so on and so forth. That's what we see under the old covenant. Our shadows looking forward to a substance. The point is that the fulfillments of these promises to Abraham under the old covenant are merely types and patterns that await greater fulfillment in the new covenant which is based on better promises. So broadly speaking, this is what the old covenant is trying to do. That's the covenant into which Isaiah is speaking. That's what he's talking about when he talks about these promises in verse 35 that were given to the servant David. But more narrowly, The progress of the Old Covenant also focuses more narrowly on one person. That is the son of David, the Messiah. That all of the types and all of the shadows and all of the patterns of the Old Covenant revealed in the kingdom of the Messiah in general. But more narrowly, Israel has more specific hopes set on a specific individual. And that individual is the king. What does all this have to do with Isaiah 37, 35? The messianic hope of the old covenant comes directly from God's covenant with his servant David. It focuses the entire kingdom down to one person and that is the king who will sit on David's throne. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. That Israel's expectation of divine blessing and protection that God had promised, they're all tied to the king And that's seen in the constant reference in the Old Testament of that word anointed, which simply means Messiah in Hebrew. So when you're reading through the Old Testament, especially when you're reading through the Psalms and you counter this word anointed, or you see this phrase anointed one, it's really important in your reading to equate the anointed one with the king of Israel, specifically the one in the line of David. The Davidic king is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, so to speak. And so what we find in the Old Testament is a bunch of lowercase m messiahs that are shadows in anticipation of something greater. Psalm 18, for instance, says this, great salvation he brings to his king and he shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. Similarly, Psalm 1 tells us who the righteous man is. But then Psalm 2 goes on to tell us that this righteous man is the Davidic king. He is the anointed one. Psalm 132 unites all of these concepts. Turn with me over to Psalm 132. 132nd Psalm unites all of these concepts of the king of Israel, the one in the line of David being the anointed one, a Messiah, of that king being the one that brings great salvation, the peace and the, the protection of God to God's people. Psalm 132. Beginning in verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on this throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne." For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever, God says. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions, and I'll satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David, and I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. All of these psalms, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, Psalm 18, Psalm 132, and many, many more, they don't ultimately contain a future hope, but they contain a present hope. Their king is their Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord, the head of the entire nation through whom the blessing and the protection of God comes to the nation, and all of this by virtue of God's covenant with David. And so the people of Israel, their expectations of blessing are wrapped up in their present king. Like I said earlier, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. So if you were to take time this afternoon and read through the history of the kings and chronicles, you'd find each king identified as either good or bad. And based on their goodness and obedience to the Lord, or based on their disobedience, either blessing comes to Israel or Judah, or cursing comes according to the covenant. As time goes on, however, things get worse, not better. And it's in this worse context that Isaiah has come preaching. Because the ongoing failures of the kings, the ongoing instability and growing instability of the kingdom, when it's viewed against the backdrop of the glorious promises of of God's covenant with David, it eventually causes a shift in perspective from the present king to a future king. A future king that certainly can't be these flawed and failing kings one after another. It has to be a king that's coming further down the line is what Israel is ultimately going to conclude. And they go from looking at the present to longing for the future. Where God this, through this future king would finally bring blessing and righteousness Turn to your left to Psalm 89 because it expresses this contrast between God's promises to David and what Israel experiences. And what it is that we're exploring in Isaiah 37 is this idea that God will keep his promises to David. What does that mean? What does it mean that he will rescue this city with all of its remnant for the sake of the name of David? Well, Psalm 89 We see God's promises to David and what Israel experiences and there's a tension between the two. Here the psalmist lays the foundation on God's promises that God had promised an established throne. Verse 20, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him and my arm shall strengthen him. And if you just scan through those verses all the way through verse 37, you'll see mentioned time and again in lots of different ways That this throne, this king, will lead to the protection and the blessing of God's people. The only problem with this promise about the king is that it conflicted with Israel's present experience. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever felt the tension of trying to reconcile God's promises with really hard things going on in your life in the present? How do these things match up? God's promise to bless me, to protect me, to dwell with me, but I'm hurt and I'm wounded and I'm tired and I'm weary and God seems really far off. How do I make sense of this? That was the conundrum that Israel was in. And that's what we see in verses 38 to 45, follow along with me. Right on the heels of all of these promises in verse 20 all the way to verse 37, they say, but now you've cast it off and you've rejected You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by and plunder him has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes and you have made all of his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth, and you have covered him with shame. In the century following Isaiah's ministry, Judah would experience defeat and exile. They'd be taken out of the land. In the face of humiliation, they accused God, as we see here, of renouncing his covenant with David. You were supposed to establish his throne, and instead, what you've done is you've thrown his crown into the dust and stomped on it. Where are you? What are you what's going on here? Zedekiah the king at the time, a century after Isaiah, under, around the time that Jeremiah was prophesying, Zedekiah the king was taken captive to Babylon. His sons were killed in front of his eyes and then his own eyes were gouged out and it seems in that moment as if the house of David has come to an end and with it God's promises. That's the context of these verses. That God has not been a man of his word, so to speak. He talked a big game to David, but he couldn't ultimately come through in the clutch. That's the tension that they're wrestling with. And so you can see then, beginning in verse 46 that Judah couldn't reconcile all of this with the promises of God. And they say, how long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Long will your wrath burn like fire. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created in the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Judah was longing for the Lord to raise up his anointed one. A king to save them and protect them and bless them. Because that's what God promised to do. That was the promise that he gave to David. David. Notice how their hope is now shifted from the present king because there has been no righteous kings in their day, and it shifts instead to the future. That with each flawed ruler, Israel looked to the next one and then the next one, always awaiting a truly righteous king from the line of David whose throne would be established. And then once the kingdom was taken from the land, the question in Israel's mind, verse 49, was simply, Where then is the Lord's anointed? We don't see him. The landscape is empty. How is God going to keep his promises and can he that's why God sent prophets like Isaiah and later Jeremiah and others to the people of Judah Jeremiah preached that the Lord would cause a righteous branch to one day spring up from David and that he will like this branch will execute justice and righteousness in the land Isaiah as we've seen in our study also promised a king on the throne of David Isaiah chapter 9 for instance We saw that his kingdom will never end. That his government is going to increase without any opposition. And this king from the line of David is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. What these prophets are saying is trust the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Even if it's counterintuitive. Even if the math and your circumstances aren't adding up. Wait on the Lord because Christmas is coming. And it's with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. Given all that we've just talked about, about the longing for the anointed one, the longing for the king in the line of David, the longing for the Messiah. Oh, Matthew 1.1 is an expression to the new testament look at how it begins the book of the genealogy of jesus christ what does it say the son of david the son of abraham the most common designation given to jesus in matthew's gospel in fact is the son of david Notice in the opening genealogy how Matthew traces Jesus' physical lineage from Abraham to David in verses two through six and then from David to Jesus in verses seven to 16. And then he presses the point even further in verse 20 where he connects the birth of Jesus to Isaiah's promise of the Davidic Messiah. In Isaiah chapter nine, look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of who? Of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her. Is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place. To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Concerning the Davidic king. In Isaiah 9. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. Luke. Gives a similar genealogy as Matthew in his gospel. And then in Acts, he records the apostles preaching this Christ as the Messiah in the line of David. Peter proclaimed in Acts chapter 2 that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was a fulfillment of all of these Old Testament expectations, specifically in Psalm 16. Paul preached in Acts chapter 13 that God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, whom he promised. In fact, the apostle Paul understood the Davidic covenant to be at the heart of the gospel, that there is no gospel apart from the promises of God to establish the name of David for the sake of his servant. That's what he says in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me and look at Romans chapter 1. We're exploring this idea from Isaiah chapter 37 that God will defend this house and rescue a remnant for the sake of his servant David. And it's in that backdrop that the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In his pastoral letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul exhorts his young protege, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. There is no gospel if God does not save a remnant by defending a city for the sake of David. There is no gospel apart from the promises of David. This is no hallmark gospel This is a gospel that has been rooted in the mighty acts of God through history in preserving a seed promised to the woman to crush a serpent's head in preserving a seed that was promised to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations to preserve a seed that is seen and prefigured in all of the types and shadows of the kingdom of Israel and is narrowed down to one who will sit on the throne of David. That seed, Paul says, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the one promised from of old. And he is the only one by which our lives must be staked. That's why when you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter three, Jesus reveals himself to be, quote, the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David. Then the elders in the heavenly vision of Revelation five proclaim, weep no more. Behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered Finally, in the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus proclaims this about himself, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And these and many, many more, what we find in the New Testament is a portrait of Jesus as the true and the better son of David who protects and blesses God's true people, those who are the survivors of Mount Zion. And unlike all those kings that came before him in the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ proved to be the true Davidic king, the anointed Messiah who was promised, who never added anything or took anything away from God's word. That he is the serpent crushing seed of the woman, who is also the nation's blessing seed of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of all of the types and shadows of the kingdom of Israel, and he is the son of David, the man of peace, the Solomon of the world. And as the perfectly righteous head of the new covenant, all of the blessings of God's promises out of his protection over his people and of divine presence in their lives comes through this king for all those who by faith alone stake their lives on him. Friends, have you staked your life on this God Or have you been tempted in looking at your circumstances to believe the words of the Rabshakas in your life? That your circumstances prove that this God can't save you. This God doesn't exist. And yet consider what this God has done. He says, I'll put a hook in your nose. I'll put a bridle in your mouth. And I will lead you where I want you to go. And where I want you to go is the same place that I want every twist and turn in history to go. And that is to the apex, the climax of all of world history that is the sending of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save for himself a people. That is a God worth staking your life on. Indeed, as God promised through Isaiah, I will defend this city and I will save it for my own sake and the sake of my servant David, that the zeal of the Lord will do it.